Hello, and welcome to the Emerge Leadership Connection, the podcast that gives you the keys to unlock your heroic potential, develop into a legendary leader, and emerge into who you were meant to be. On today's episode, we have a conversation with Rachel Kaplan and discuss suicide and how to move forward, emotional potty training for grown-ups, shooting ourselves, and failures in the therapeutic industry. I'm your host, Cody Dakota, founder of The Leadership Guide and finalist for the Extraordinarian Award for coaches with ideas that can change people, businesses, and the world for the better for my ideas on leadership. Stay tuned to the end of the episode to discover how to join the League of Legendary Leaders, an association of leaders with the goal to raise $100,000 monthly to support nonprofit causes which are currently looking to impact the world and make it better for future generations. Now, on to the show. Hey, Rachel, how are you doing today? I'm doing fabulously. How about you? You know, I'm loving life, living life. That's awesome. So, most definitely. So, tell me a little bit about what you do for our audience and uh, so we can jump into things. Okay, well, um, hi everybody. Um, I'm a licensed psychotherapist and I've been in practice for about 13 years. But what um, crossed our paths, the way I met Cody, um, and what I'm doing, the kind of leading edge of my work in the world is I have just taken um, the deepest, most necessary, most effective, uh, aspects of the healing journey that I've learned over 25 years of studying it and walking my own path with it, which I'm happy to tell you about soon. Um, I've combined that all into what I would say is the absolute um, most necessary thing we all need in order to be emotionally healthy and to have real um, well-being, real emotional resilience. Um, and I've put that into, uh, I've, I've disguised it. It's a, it's a transformational <laughs> course disguised as a podcast called The Healing Feeling Shit Show. Um, and if you're looking it up, the I in the word shit is an asterisk because in the end, iTunes won. And they, they <laughs> didn't want me to swear. Darn you, iTunes. <laughs> Facebook said, no, you can't promote if you use that word, even with the, um, you know, the asterisk. And I was like, I don't care. Really? And iTunes said no. And so I said, Okay, you don't have a podcast if, if iTunes doesn't say you have a podcast. So that's what I'm doing, and it's really exciting. That's awesome. So, so one, you touch upon emotional wellness. That is a huge topic, extremely important for, well, for everybody, but especially for people in leadership. Absolutely. Because not only do you need to be emotionally well, but you need to make sure your team is emotionally well. Absolutely. And, and the thing is, is if you're not emotionally well, there's a high likelihood that you're actually bringing that off onto your team and making Absolutely. them emotionally unwell, which is That's terrible. Yeah. So you said you've been studying this for 25 years. That's a yeah. lot of time to be dedicating to this. Well, one more thing before I go into my own journey, just to yeah. piggyback on what you just sure. said, is that it, um, in addition to the emotional wellness, setting the tone in any workplace or on any team, there's also so much pressure on the leaders. And oh, yeah. there is this expectation. I think we're raised in a society where we're taught to believe that what will make us happy or what will make us feel like we're enough, like we're, like we're good enough, um, we're lovable, um, is 
achieving success. There's a, a myriad of other things we're taught too, like, you know, the white picket fence, the family, all these different things. But so I imagine that a lot of the leaders and um, what listening and watching your show are people who they are achieving or striving to achieve these high levels of success, quote unquote, and they might be incredibly riddled with um, things called imposter or that we know of as imposter syndrome or this sense of who am I to be in this role? Or if they are doing well, if they're actually succeeding, you know, are they, do they feel worthy enough inside to actually receive the success or does this add more and more pressure to a fragile inner world where they feel like at any moment the shoe's going to drop? And so part of what I'm doing is saying, look, whether it's your LinkedIn profile, your, your stacks of cash, um, you know, whatever it is you've been trying to do to medicate the not enoughness, to medicate your own emotional pain, chances are you've realized by the time you're well into adulthood, it didn't work. Um, and we see that with successful people all the time, taking their lives, um, losing their lives in overdose. You know, it's, it's, um, it's really challenging. Even being really successful, even being famous is challenging. And so Very. what I'm trying to offer is a way that people can actually heal internally, can get really good at having their pain so that they actually feel worthy of the success that they are generating in their lives. And so they don't feel like they're faking it. And so they don't feel like at any moment it's all going to crumble. And I think your leaders really need to know how to do that. Definitely. No, that that's gigantic to be able to do that because it, like if you feel like you're not enough, it eventually it will crumble around you. That's right. not what legendary leaders do. Legendary leaders create something that withstand time that is remembered long after they're gone. And that requires the solid foundation internally first right. before you can really achieve it externally. Right. You can have all the money in the world and not be successful truly. And right. that's, that's a huge key. Yeah, I agree. Awesome. So let's dive into your story. Tell me okay. about it. 25 years into yeah. the healing experiment, experience internally. Yeah, I like that you said experiment. Actually, one of my cards, my old card said um, experiential therapy. Uh -huh. And what was interesting is everyone read it as experimental. <laughs> You're like, uh oh. I'm like, actually, that was a brain, brain twist. Look again. <laughs> but um, it is an experiment, right? So, yeah, so 25 years, uh, you might be thinking, gosh, you look too young <laughs> to have 25 years of, um, you know, history or, or experience. But uh, the deal is, and I'm just joking, you may not be thinking that, but I, I like to say that. I, 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 it, it's true. She's very young looking. She does not look like she's had 25 years of experience. So. Well, I'm creeping on 40. So, so those kinds of affirmations are so useful. But um, yeah, the deal something is- right then. That, that's for you. sure. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, the deal is, is that I did get exposed to it kind of tragically young. And so my, I was, uh, my first love, my first attachment um, beyond my family uh, happened when I, I met him at 12. And, uh, you know, he was my world in some way for a couple of years. And before both of us turned 15, within weeks actually of both of us turning 15, he committed suicide. And, um, you know, that's suicide for anyone at any age is really um, just devastating for the people yeah. around someone who commits suicide. Um, certainly for someone for myself as a 14 year old where I was struggling with just your average challenges of almost being a, you know, being a new teenager, being young in my adolescence and really my own sensitivity, my own fragile sense of worth. Um, 
it was really just you know, it kind of crippled me at a certain level. Um, and and the experience is much more convoluted um, than it sounds even. And, and one thing just to let people know if they're curious about that, um, of course, I want you to listen to my show if you're interested, but episode four, which kind of stands alone, the whole thing ideally would be experienced in order, but episode four is actually the memoir narrative of that experience, just to share as a means of helping people understand what it's possible to overcome. And because for me, this journey, so what that sent me on is like a relentless journey of studying healing for my own relief, really. Um, I mean, you know, shortly after his death, I was trying to explore what do the different religions of the world say about suicide. And of course, it's devastating to read. They're all pretty much on the same page that it's, you know, it's, it's not a good move for a soul. Um, but, you know, with, by the time I was uh, a senior in high school, I was, uh, my, my honors project uh, was the alphabet of healing. And so I'd started healing, you know, around 18. I, had, I did some fabulous individual therapy during those years. Um, so it was like the first layer. I thought I was further than I was, but you know, um, I spent my college years, I, um, studied Eastern religions. I went to a college where the psychology department, I knew I wanted to be a therapist by 18, but the, uh, it was very research focused. So, um, I decided that wasn't the right place for me to study psychology. So I made up a major actually in Eastern religions and spent a lot of time in Asia, um, studying meditation, yoga. I speak Nepali. Um, really kind of looking at what is the East and these more um, explicitly esoteric practices have to teach us about healing. And then I went to, um, became a trained yoga teacher, um, did my undergrad thesis on meditation and um, its impact on us. And then um, my, my graduate degree was in counseling psychology. And so I've studied the Western, um, you know, pantheon of, of techniques and technologies. Um, and, you know, I've been in practice as a, as a, trained therapist for 13 years now, like I said. Um, and then the deepest mentorship and help that I received in that journey was actually through um, someone I would consider a, a total master um, who, when I first started working with him, he lived in a mud hut, literally. Um, <laughs> I was shocked he had a telephone. Most of our work was over the phone. Um, but someone who has, you know, kind of through his own suffering and his own healing journey was deeply initiated into a native um, healing lineage of, of a very profound kind of gift of um, in that world. It's the Apache lineage. Um, to be a healer means one who carries the gift, and he's an incredibly um, masterful healer, and that was kind of the most recent support I got. And, you know, I had already been, while I was working with him, I had already been, you know, professional in the world for many years. But through all of that, um, kind of cross-cultural exploration, what I learned was, you know, that, you know, that the most important tenet of healing is that, you know, we need to be able to actually feel our feelings. And on one hand, people, you know, there's all these fun new cultural cliches about like, have the feels, all the feels, I'm in my feelings. <laughs> you know, it's like, which is cool. Yeah. It's cool that our culture is coming around to this, but generally, um, you know, and the, the podcast really helps people understand how this happens, but we're really conditioned out of emotions. And men actually, you know, um, this isn't as true right now, but generally speaking in, in older generations and, you know, certainly our parents, uh, I imagine, um, were under this conditioning. Men were not supposed to have feelings or could only, are only supposed to feel anger. And, mm -hmm. and instead we're living in a world and an economy that is literally funded by us feeling like, um, you know, we'll be happy 
if we buy, if we consume, when if we, we get there. Exactly. Um, and, and they're actually invested in us believing that because to really love ourselves and to feel like, well, I don't actually need all these things. I don't need as many sweaters. I don't need the newest app or whatever it is, you know, brings down their sales. And so the act of actually, you know, between the conditioning we receive as children by very well-intentioned parents and then, you know, the conditioning of our culture at large, most of us have really shut down quite a bit of our emotional system. Um, okay. And the reason why my show is called The Shit Show um, <laughs> is that I have found that the single best way to understand, actually understand how we're supposed to relate to our emotions, is if we look at how we relate to digestion and to our shit. Um, and just to give right. you a little example. <laughs> that, that's a really interesting thing to say because I don't, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that your Absolutely. digestion is literally the place to understand your emotions. I know. I, I want to hear more about this. It's cutting edge. Um, well, think about it. When you had, the last time you had to take a poop, you got a feeling from your body, right? You have some, you at this point can recognize the sensations, the signal, whether it's cramping or rumbling or just you're like, I know it's coming. And you know, like, so let me ask you a question, Cody. Did you, when you had that feeling, were you like, oh, wait, I got that feeling. Should I eat something? Or maybe if I post something that's really liked, I won't have that feeling. <laughs> no. Or should I buy something? Once, once you have that feeling, you're kind of just like, yep, that's the feeling. I, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta go take care of that. Yeah, exactly. You go to the nearest place to move that feeling to, to, to shit. Because that's you, you know that that's the only way you're going to not have that feeling. Yeah. And everything you do between the moment of having that feeling and the moment of relieving that feeling by going to the bathroom won't be as fun. It's like no one wants to be full of shit all day, right? Exactly. And that is it's uncomfortable. It is. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. And um, basically what I'm saying is that what we need to learn is so what are emotions? They are intense clusters of sensation rolling in squats so they're you know it's like if we're if we're if we're angry it's like this heat rises we might feel um a lot of tension muscularly in the arms like you're ready get, to fight yeah like tightness in the jaw all this it's like it's just but they're they're sensations not that different from the percolation of your neck shit right and so um and but you know as obvious as it is that well no you just go to the bathroom duh it's not that obvious with our emotions. What we do when we have, when we feel lonely or we feel sad is we turn on Netflix, we um, text someone, we post something, we eat something, we smoke something, we drink something, we watch porn, whatever it is that people are addicted to. I call it the drug of choice. Mm -hmm. It's like- Pick we, your poison. Exactly. Like whatever you've, you've become accustomed to as a medication or a numbing of your emotions. And the truth is, is none of those- technologies work just the same way they wouldn't yeah. work if for pooping right it's like someone who eats food but never poops is probably dead but at the very <laughs> least really sick and, and not same, doing well at all <laughs> no miserable sick and so the same is true emotionally it's like if you are trying to live in this world where you're taking risks where you're leading where you're um just subject to some of the devastation or the poverty or the inequality or just your own personal life dramas like you cannot be a person right now and not have emotions it's just part of the package that we have emotions and so what i'm trying to teach people is how do you recognize the signal and what is the emotional equivalent of going to the nearest place where you can move that feeling and taking an emotional poop. Definitely. And, and I mean, if, if you take, if you, if you're really thinking about it, right. 
you have to train yourself as a child to use the bathroom. It's right. not like it comes naturally to you, right? Right. right. And yeah. some, for some people, it takes years. Right. You know, hopefully, hopefully it doesn't for everybody. But sure. there are some people where it literally takes years to figure out how to use the bathroom correctly. Right. And so if, if that's like the same kind of experience you have to have for using the bathroom, I imagine that that's the same kind of thing you have to work with, with right. understanding your emotions and learning how to utilize your emotions more effectively and how to right. let them quote unquote pass through your system. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I joke that I'm an emotional potty trainer and that the podcast <laughs> is emotional potty training for grownups. It really is. What's interesting is if you look at a child, um, a child is very emotional and they, before they, they get conditioned out of it, you know, you see little toddlers tantruming and that makes, you know, if you're, if your kid is splayed out on the, on the aisle of, uh, on the floor of aisle six in a grocery store, you, you're in trouble. <laughs> it makes grocery shopping hard. So very I'm not trying to parents. condemn, yeah, not trying <laughs> to condemn parents, but um, there is an innate system that they understand where they feel their feelings and it gets conditioned out of them. Um, and so part of what we're going to look at through the course of, you know, the season two, where I'm bringing in other kind of healing experts is how do you raise children? How do you have parenting that supports uh, the emotional system being this organic mechanism for um, homeostasis, for balance, because to regain our balance or our baseline where we kind of naturally live at emotionally, um, if something bad happens to us, we actually have to like move the feeling or pass the feeling. And because so many adults, by the time they would get to, you know, any kind of inquiry around well-being or any, by the time they're podcast listening, right, um, they're, they're dealing with usually decades of repressing, repressing and contorting and trying to not have these feelings. And so it's not as easy as it sounds. It's um, not easy at all. Right. And so a lot of the work is really helping people strategize about how do you increase your connection to yourself enough um, and have, I like to use the metaphor in this case of, of bandwidth. It's like if you forgot to download a movie and you're at the airport and you really wanted to watch a movie on your flight, but you're dealing with airport Wi-Fi, you're not going to watch the movie because, you know, there's no amount of time it's going to get... <laughs> yeah, it's like the the file is so big that your bandwidth is not strong enough to download it. And when we dealt with years and decades of repressing emotions and trying to medicate emotions, what, what happens in the backlog is a massive file. And so a lot of the work is learning how do we increase our bandwidth so we can have this big thing come through so we cannot be afraid of it or ashamed of it. Definitely. And, and with, with all those years and years and years of backlog data, just, just like in a computer system, usually you purposefully create different locks and things in the system that you exactly. try to forget because right. you don't want to feel that. And, right. that. and because our society has told us not to feel that. Right. And yeah. so, so you, you, not only do you have to figure out how do you get that backload of information downloaded, right? But you have to figure out all the freaking passwords along the right. way. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so I like what you said about the locks. It's like, you know, um, it's a step-by-step -step approach of how do you tune in? How do you figure out where you're shitting yourself? Um, and that wasn't, it didn't, I know it's, that actually sounded like I said <laughs> shitting. And it's perfect that it sounds that way because shitting is very much like, shitting on ourselves? Where are we telling us ourselves we should be other than we are? Um, where do we have critics? Where do we, where do we have um, these different systems where we've taken parts of ourselves 
that we thought made us unlovable, made us doomed to lose our the, the affection of our parents and then our peers. Um, where do we? Where have we stashed these parts of ourselves? You know, usually in a, in a basement. Kind of, I like to think of it as the emotional basement, the closet where you <laughs> like creepy, right? And how do we go down there and you know reestablish a connection and become trustworthy enough to these parts of us that we've been scapegoating, that we've been locking away and start to reconnect in a way where eventually the pain starts to emerge and you know we can feel it move it through pass it through um tend to all the different layers and then eventually those parts of us that we thought made us um unlovable or bad or wrong or not enough or too much whatever it was right mm -hmm. they, they start to reincorporate into us and then suddenly that's where you see you know, just to go back to this exceptional leadership thing, it's like the people who really change the world are not trying to fit into the world. They are doing the unique, weird, quirky thing that only they thought of doing in the weird way that only they can do. And they're, you know, obviously it takes other skill sets too, but you know, some of the most revolutionary people I think are people who are not trying to fit in. And if we think that fitting in and fitting what our parents were comfortable with or what our sports teams were comfortable with or what the, you know, technology world or, you know, millennial world, whatever it is, if we just try to fit in, we're going to be stashing away or locking away all of our brilliance. And so what I see is as people start to do this healing work and reincorporate these parts that they were sure made them, you know, bad, essentially, um, what you see is like a real brilliance and, um, you know, kind of the medicine that they're meant to bring to the people <laughs> comes out. Definitely. Yeah. And, and there's, there's something that happened to me about two, maybe three years ago. Um, so, so growing up, right. I was, I was considered borderline ADD, ADHD, which mm -hmm. basically means I'm super high energy, but not so high energy that they need to medicate me. Got but it. I went through the school system being told that I need to sit still, I need to shut up, I need right. to do, I need to focus in on the work. And I trained myself years and years and years to do that. And basically I got to a point where I basically told myself that I was very introverted. Mm -hmm. Right. And so what happened a couple of years ago is I took a, um, a, a personality test from this book called Wired That Way, which I think is a phenomenal book. And basically, it's, it's got these, these, the different profiles that you've got. And when you go through it, one of the things they talk about is called a mask, right? Mm -hmm. And what it, basically what it shows is you kind of look like you're 50-50 between two different profiles that are opposite of each other. And, and that doesn't really make sense because usually you can only be on one side and you might be able, if there, there's like four pieces, right? And you might have some personalities of one of the other ones next to it, but not the complete opposite side. And so what happens is because of something that happens in our life, whether it's parents, whether it's the school system, whether it's, you know, sports coaches, whatever it is, puts this idea in your head that you can't be this way. Mm. So you create a mask of this other personality, right? So that it looks like you're this way when deep, deep down inside, you're actually this way. Right. And so for me, I had one of those going on. And the way it shows up is that you have all the positive aspects on this side because you've trained yourself to be good at those. And you have all the negative aspects over here because, um, because that's just naturally what you go to. 
and you haven't trained in any of the positive aspects. You're just kind of stuck with the, the what's deep down naturally there. And so part of all of that discovery for me was figuring out, oh, I have this mask that makes me look like I'm an introvert, but really I'm not. I'm actually more of an extrovert. I get energy being around people. I get energy from having conversations with people. I get energy from going out and doing things, not from sitting down, being quiet, and shutting up and focusing, right? right. right? So are you saying that um, the, the extroversion aspect of you wasn't cultivated and you hadn't figured out at that point how to maximize the strength? Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and in some respects, I'm still learning how to utilize it. Sure. There's, there's, there's a lot of times where I'll get into a social gathering and I've trained myself for years and years and years in one way that I still appear that way. I mean, we met at the New Media Summit and mm -hmm. you can ask some of the people who met me there there's quite a few of them I would probably say I'm introverted. I was actually on an interview two weeks ago, maybe, where the, the host said I was an introvert and they wouldn't expect me to say this kind of stuff because that's, because that's how I trained myself to be for years. Right, well, that was safe for you. Exactly. That's how you weren't gonna get ridiculed and shamed by the teachers and your parents. Yeah, I mean, it's really amazing that, you're, that your journey led you to you know, recognizing that and how cool that now you get to grow into this other aspect of you that feels, you know, essential to you. Um, feels and natural. natural. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's what I meant by essential, like actually your essence, like who yeah. you are. Yeah. I, I like to say that, you know, it's easy to think that we have a choice, like how should I be? Should I be like this person or this person? Or should I try to be like this model? But <laughs> I don't think that's how it works. I feel like it's, you know, we can be the most balanced version of ourselves. We can bring out different aspects of ourselves. You know, I was just talking to someone today who is um, an Ayurvedic practitioner, which is like the wellness component of yoga. So it's okay. a 5,000 year old system of how, do, how does each person live in balance with kind of their essential nature and also within the world. And so I do think that any one person, you know, can be, you know, a variation of who they are. But I think there's a really cool thing that can happen when we realize, oh, I just have to learn how to be myself really well. It's not about like, who do I want to be? But like, I'm the only one who can be me, you know? And so starting to get really curious about that and starting to unfold, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly of that, right? Definitely. Like, it's not always comfortable to be how we are, oh, you know? It's not comfortable at all sometimes, if, especially if we've trained ourselves to be a certain way for so long, right? right. It's kind of like you're in the middle of a dirt road and you've dug a ditch, for right. years and years and years, right? And now you're all like, oh, wait, I don't need to be down. I actually need to be five miles that way. Right, yeah. <laughs> and like, how do I get I out of this hole? <laughs> right, exactly. And that's part of why I feel so good about the show that I created is I don't think it's easy. And I actually don't think the therapeutic industry is doing a good enough job. Um, I feel like I give us a B minus as an industry as far as really helping people heal. Why do you say and that? Uh, lots of reasons. I mean, first of all, um, you know, there's various practitioners, so I'm not, I'm not claiming that every pack, this is true of every practitioner, but, um, I think that a few things, uh, a few examples. One is that if you're, if you're getting money, if you're earning money by people coming in to see you cause they have problems, you have to really be in high integrity and trust around the flow of clients and, um, you know, your own financial well-being to not 
somehow subtly inadvertently want to make your clients dependent on you. As a therapist, if I'm doing really good work, I want to help them not need me. Beyond that, for me as a practitioner, I'm recognizing these days that I'm barely palatable as a practitioner because if someone's coming in hurting, like they're, something's not working, they're not living as their true self, their life doesn't fit them well because it's not really based on who they are, um, I feel like it's my job with care and skill and compassion to help them see their blind spots and to get them into the places, get them out of their comfort zone, basically. But sometimes, you know, people don't want to hear that, see that they're not ready. And so I think there are a lot of practitioners where the main thing they're doing is moaning empathically while basically saying, how are you feeling? Oh, or reframing of everything someone says in a positive light. And that might create a surface level feel good, but that person isn't necessarily getting into the place where they're really contributing to their own suffering. And so, yeah. you know, and then just one other thing that's a little more on the theory side, you know, there's so many different types of therapy right now. Um, but one of the big ones is um, working with like CB, uh, with, work with our thoughts. So CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and there's other ones that work with the thoughts. But there's um, a lot of approaches where they're trying to have someone become very aware of the kinds of thoughts they're having and, and try to find reasonable thoughts. Now, as a practice, that's a good idea. And I have my own version of like helping people do what I call reality testing at the end of an emotional poop where you have those reasonable <laughs> thoughts and you find yeah. out what thoughts actually not just are true, but are true to the wounded parts. So I, I, it's not that I'm shunning this model altogether, but what I think happens is if you have a core wound, if you were taught early in your life that aspects about you weren't okay or weren't acceptable or that you had to shut yourself down in a certain way to get approval that like that's much deeper than the surface level of your thoughts and so if you don't address that the the boulder at the bottom of the water or the sea dragon whatever it is then you know you're not you can try to alter the surface ripples but it's not going to work but if you do go into that core thing and you help someone heal actually heal the part of them that feels worthless or not enough or too much or too loud or too much energy whatever it is then naturally the surface will change and so i think as an industry you're seeing we're seeing too much of trying to manage emotions trying to work on the superficial levels and practitioners keeping people comfortable instead of actually you know caringly showing people their shit <laughs> definitely no and that's that's gigantic what you just touched on because i i feel like i i would call that a disease what you're talking about that disease doesn't just impact the the healing industry as a whole i think it's that everywhere. impacts all over the place especially yeah. in every area of leadership because because it, it's like either one we know how to heal it, but we don't want to do the work to heal all that stuff. Or two, we don't know how to heal it. Right? I think it's more two. <laughs> and you, you may be right. I don't have the stats on that to say for sure, right? But if, if you don't know how to, to do it, right, you, you can't help people if you don't know how to do it yourself, right? Oh, right. You can't give what you do not have. Right. And so, so one, you have to know how to do it. You have to know in the healing world, you have to know how to heal in the leadership world. You have to know how to lead other people, which starts with yourself. You have to know how to lead yourself before you can lead other people. Right. Right. And, yeah. and drawing on this thought further, right. 
my guess is that these healing practitioners you're talking about who are in their, their levels of leadership are having their own emotional crap, right? That they can't figure out. And that's why they're not willing to do the deep work right. to help people. Well, part of what I've recognized is that to go as deep as it sometimes requires to get this type of true healing, um, there needs to be a need. And I think part of what I've finally reckoned with is that having something so devastating in this, you know, really crucial moment of my life, you know, adolescence is hard enough, right? Yeah. But that was so impactful that it demanded, I mean, I could have gone lots of ways, right? I could have become a drug addict. I could have just, I could have taken my life, right? But since that, that isn't who I am and that, that I don't think is why I'm here, it basically demanded that I take this path as deep as I possibly could. And so for someone who's becoming a therapist, because it's a fantastic career, and of course, every human has challenges and suffering. I don't think you can't be a person without having pain. That's yeah. also why I use the metaphor of pooping, because everybody does it, right? It's like, yeah. we're all in it together. We're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to lose our keys. We're going to lose our phones. We're going to lose our jobs sometimes. We're going to lose relationships. We're going to lose our lives. Like there's not a way to not have pain. So I, I'm not saying that any therapist hasn't, could be a human and be a, you know, at the age you need to be to be a professional therapist without having pain. But I think there's tons of people who haven't had the kind of critical excruciating life experiences that demand that you take it as deep as I have. Um, and that's, a, that's great for them, but it might not be as great for their clients. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I, I think, yeah, I think that anyone in therapy really wants to check out. Do you feel like you're getting beyond your comfort zone? Do you feel like the person that you're working with is really supporting or increasing your bandwidth to feel your feelings more when you're around them than when you're not? Do you feel like they're giving you tools where you're actually becoming less and less dependent on them and not more? Yeah. And, and that, that's huge. That's tying back. You said that that starts with values, right? You you have to have integrity and trust, right? right? If you don't have those things, that's true of any leadership position in, in the world. You need integrity in what you do and you need to gain trust of the people you work with. If you, you don't have those things, you can't lead. Go ahead. And just, you need to have trust of yourselves. I think that's yeah. really the, the crippling thing we're missing. And you know, I, I spoke to it before, but imposter syndrome, I think that there's so much pressure to look perfect and to be perfect. And, um, you know, I think when people, the more attention we get, the more people are watching, often the louder those inner critics inside, those, you know, fears get of, of being exposed for being less than perfect. And so, so much of my mission behind the Healing Feeling Shit Show is about dismantling the cultural shame around pain and really trying to be like, hey guys, let's all get real. No one's perfect. Nobody's yeah. happy all the time. You're not supposed <laughs> to be, but why don't you get really effective at you know, dealing with what you do have, the struggles you have, the pain you have, and then you can be the unique, imperfect, but amazing person you are. Definitely. Yeah. I've, I've got some clients who are, who are like that type A personality, high driven, high achieving. And there, there are times where they're like, they're so focused on getting whatever thing they're working on perfect right? It's kind of like you need to stop, right? right. It's not going to be perfect, period, right? right. That's okay. And, I'm and not they, perfect. You're not perfect. That's okay, right? Do they get paralyzed in that or is it like they, they want, yeah. It's, 
It's a huge paralyzing effect, right? Because, because that idea of perfection, you can't achieve it, right? There will always be something that goes wrong. And so when you're so focused on doing perfect, you can't do it. It's just not possible because we're humans. We're not perfect. Right. Oh no, right? Right. So, so when you stop seeking perfection, right, you, you can achieve excellence. Hmm. And, and what I like to say is that it's better to have 80% of something than 100% of nothing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And my version of that is that instead of being obsessed with happiness, what I feel like doing this deep healing work with yourself will do, becoming emotionally potty trained, creates a state that I refer to as um, emotional resilience, which I absolutely think is better than happy. Because what it is, is the trust that whatever life throws at us, we can handle because we can move our feelings through us. So if we feel afraid, if we um, get rejected, if we're sad, if we're mad, whatever, we know how to deal with it in the way that we don't have to use our fear of those experiences and those feelings um, you know, to, to paralyze us. And so we can take bigger risks and we can you know, put ourselves out in the world because we know that we can handle the world and our lives and ourselves. Definitely, yeah. You, you have to have that resilience, right? If, if you don't have that resilience, you will crumble every single time. Right, yeah. It, and it's, it's so... It's it's difficult to do. It takes years and years and years to to understand it, right? You're never again, you're never gonna be perfect at it. Right. But years just to understand how it should flow through you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's true. Awesome. I I w I'm curious about this because I know there are people out in the world who are listening right now mm-hmm. who who either have had someone close to them commit suicide. They, they have kids who are thinking about suicide. Maybe they've thought about committing suicide, right? You were so close to that situation in your youth. How did you, how were you able to get through that yourself at that time, thinking back then? Because you, you can reflect on it now and think about what you would do now, but how did you get through it then when you were that young? Yeah, well, it's a good question. Um, I mean, I think the first thing I want to throw out there, and I feel like part of what I'm harvesting uh, in the last few years as I've been putting this material out into the world is I think part of my mission um, is to just plant the seed of doubt to anyone who's considering suicide as an end to pain. Um, and I won't get into the details because it, it'll sound woo-woo. And, um, but I just, from my life experience and my study, and this includes every single religious tradition I've I've been able to get my hands on every kind of medium who, you know, channels dead people, all all kinds of study into this. I think it's just fair to at least doubt that that choice um, takes someone out of their pain. I mean, what you see in the environment around suicide prevention is a real focus on the pain that everyone is left with. And I think we can all agree that that's very obvious and certainly that, that I experienced. But my experience is that I also think that that person, the soul of that person is actually almost paralyzed in um, a timeless version of that pain. So take it or leave it. You're, you're free to think anyone listening is free to think that like I'm too far out in that way. But I just think if, if we doubted that, I mean, the people who would actually consider that choice are desperate. They're in a, a situation and a level of pain that feels intolerable. 
And I just think if you can look at one thing we know about being a person is things change. Sometimes we love it, sometimes we hate it, right? Like we age, we lose our hair, we, we get wrinkly, things, you know, things that felt good stop feeling good, things that, that didn't feel good start feeling good. Like change is one of the truths I think you can observe on the planet in your life. And I think that as hard as it is, if you can stick to your life and really commit to getting help, talking to people, doing like using whatever resource you have, have at your, at your fingertips, I have absolutely given the best of what I've learned in the healing feeling shit show. Feel free to like dive into that, but get help for yourself because in this world, things can change. And my experience of the choice of suicide is that it's, it's almost like taking out the beauty of that. And when you're in that much pain, you don't want to stay in that much pain. Like I've, there's a great quote that says, when you're going through hell, keep going. <laughs> you know, it's like, don't stop in your deepest suffering. I, I love the way you've, you phrased that. You said the beauty of the pain, mm -hmm. right? I, th I would agree that I think there is tons of beauty that you can feel, that you can obtain through that pain. Right. I think that I think that life without pain is very boring. Um, I think I think that part of what we seek is is a hero's journey, right? And every hero has to go through a period of time where they fall, right? right? It's a natural part of the cycle. And right. what makes the person heroic is when they stand up after falling, right? And continue forward anyways. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and if, if you're thinking about suicide, I've been there. It's a hard place to be because you feel like everything's done. You feel like it can't get any better because this has happened and this stamp has been put upon me that can never be removed. And in some respects, maybe there's a portion of that that's true. The most, in my opinion, the most insidious things are the things that are only partially true, right? Mm. Maybe that stamp has been placed upon you, but that stamp doesn't have to define you forever. Right. Um, um, oh, I'm, I'm blanking on the, the name of the um, book. You might, you might know it well, but there was, um, there was a guy who was uh, in the who was a Jewish man during Holocaust. World War II. Yeah, during yeah, the Holocaust. Man's search for meaning, Victor Frankl. Thank you, Victor <laughs> Frankl. I hate when I miss people's names, especially when they're as huge as Victor Frankl. Ha. Huh. Anyways, again, see, I'm not perfect. Right. You heard it right here. I'm not perfect. I'm okay with that. Victor Frankl was somebody who literally went through Nazi camp, had a literal stamp put upon him right? And he went through that awful traumatic experience, right? People did kill themselves there. There was no hope there. There was nothing, right? But he stuck it out anyways. And he has gone on to create an amazing legacy, even though he had that stamp put on him, literally a stamp put on him, right? right? Of, of a prisoner number that that was what he was called in the internment camp. Right. And so, yes, that stamp was always with him, right? To this day, it's still with him. But that is not the defining thing of his legacy. Right. The defining thing of his legacy is the book he came out with afterwards, Man's Search for Meaning, which is a phenomenal book. And it's, it is a life-changing work by itself. And it has changed millions of lives by itself. Right. Yeah. And so maybe you do have that stamp put on you. Maybe it will stick with you. 
but that doesn't have to define you going forward and you can rise above it. Right. That's right. Yeah. It's beautifully said. And, um, you know, I want, I, I just want to help people avoid that trap. Just if you do want me to say, the one thing I'll say is I think the first few years after, because I didn't answer your question, I said something else, but um, the first few <laughs> years okay. after his suicide, there I did have a fantasy that I was going to kill myself. Um, well, actually, I'll, I'll just expose myself for being weird sure. one more time. This was really actually, this has only happened this one time in my entire life. And when you hear the story, um, if you when you go to episode four of, the HFSS, you'll hear this, but right after it was confirmed that he was dead. And I, I knew he was dead when I heard, I called in the morning and heard this thing. And, but like nobody knew it wasn't confirmed. I was the one, and I was the one who talked to his parents. It was really just devastating, but I'm in his house in the moment. My mom's there, his um, mother, brother, and sister are there in the moment that it was confirmed that he was dead. And it was just the most chaotic scene you can imagine. Um, but in this moment of utter chaos, I heard a voice and I've never heard voices. <laughs> it's never happened again. It wasn't his voice. It was unclear. Like, I don't know if it was something inside or ex external. I don't know, but it said it's clear as day. You will never do this to yourself. And then it was gone. So I heard that. Ooh, I just got I, shivers. Yeah, okay. it was really clear. I heard that, but I just, you know, I put a, a note in his pocket at his funeral um, saying I'm coming and for probably at least two, I guess, you know, two, two and a half years, there was some part of my, um, mind that was like planning. I, I made a few different, very loose plans. And, um, I think I knew that I'd never, I, I mean, I, I had actually tried to stop him from committing suicide by saying I was going to do it too, just as the only way I could try to intervene. Um, and I, and the night before I, you know, told him, repeatedly that if he did it, I would never forgive him no matter where he went and that I would do it too. And, um, it was, so it was really like my effort to stop him. So I, I never really thought that that was true, but at the same time, my attachment to this person was really the entirety of what I cared about. I was like obsessed as a teenager can be. Yeah. Um, and so I don't think I really believed it, but I, there was always this part of me when I would cross through one of those timelines, like for instance, I'd be like, maybe I'll kill myself this summer before going back to school. And then right as I was going back to school, there was some part of me that would grieve over the fact that I wasn't doing that and I was still in this you know, terrible pain. Um, and I just think I started healing. I think that um, you know, the first time it really started to show the healing that I was doing um, was when I was you know, almost 18. And it was actually another loss. It was the end of the next relationship that I got into um, that brought me back. And, you know, and I had this powerful experience of like, you know, life's not a circle. We, we go through these cycles, we go through different experiences, but when we come back to where we started and maybe what we've been afraid of, we are, we're changed. Like the, the loop has expanded. It's a spiral. It's like, we are not that same person. And yeah. I started waking up to, um, through the act of, of being left, which was like, you know, what I was ultimately terrified about. I tried to break up with this boyfriend before he went to college, but he was like, no, no, we're soulmates. And I was like, I don't know. And, but he like begged me and finally I'm like, okay, I'll try it. And then he left to college and was just like, what's your name? Oh. Um, but anyway, which was perfect. It was perfect because it brought me to the thing I was most terrified of, which was to be left again. Um, and I realized that I had you know, I had healed and I was not that person. Now, now what I know as a 39 year old, you know, um, 21 years later is that that was the beginning of a journey and that some injuries, some experiences, you know, use the word insidious. It's a beautiful word for sometimes certain experiences, um, like this experience, uh, like 
certain traumas, rapes, like they are so insidious in our being that, that it's, it's easy to plateau and feel like you've addressed it and you can kind of function, you can hobble around the world with your injuries, but to truly heal um, takes a tremendous amount of skill and support and strength. And so, you know, this was really, um, and then this is another thing just to loop back to what you're talking about with the hero's journey. Interestingly, um, I got married in 2012, um, someone I love very deeply and someone who actually had a lot of similar qualities. I didn't realize this consciously in the beginning, but to this dead boyfriend of mine. And we loved each other very deeply, but as soon as we were married, it was very clear we had a nearly, if not completely untenable dynamic that kind of actually changed at, at our wedding. It became more severe. I think something about the expectations of marriage and kind of what's passed down through the generations about what it means to be married. So I, that is what propelled me into this last deepest round of work with this healer. And interestingly, the healer and my husband, I like to call him. Um, <laughs> That's an interesting, an interesting I word I like. Isn't it great? Your husband. Anyone who listens is welcome to use that. Um, I hope you don't have one unless, unless it's like the way I have one where it's perfect. But um, they have the same name and, and the healer's name is actually, his last name is Grant. And I don't want to say the name just because he's a very private person. But so I was in this like life-changing sandwich of a marriage with one person and, and then healing work with this person with the same name, but the last name of Grant. And I worked so hard to really face myself. And, and very quickly, it became clear that my contributions to what wasn't working about the marriage had really everything to do with the leftover wounding from this suicide. And so I worked my butt off and really in crazy ways um, and learned how to become really proficient with emotional pooping and learned I would chop wood with an ax quite regularly as a means of harnessing anger and like learning how to create enough support so I could cry and grieve and feel into my shame and worthlessness, like really all of the emotions, which I break down in the, in the HFSS. So, and then, you know, and I went through a journey where I moved out for a year in the marriage and we were still together, but trying to figure it out. And then I moved back in. And anyway, I finally got to a place where I was like, you know what? It's clear I will not have well-being in my life if I stay in this marriage. It's not from a lack of love, but it's just almost a mechanical misalignment between me and this person. And I finally got clear I was going to leave. I sat with it for a couple of days. We agreed to talk on the next open day, which was Saturday. And what day was that? It was the 22-year anniversary to the day of the dead boyfriend's death. Ooh, that is... that. <laughs> if, if you could talk about fate... That yeah. might be one of those one of those yeah. moments. And one more piece to that, I then found the dream apartment, which with within which I sit right now, and uh, I knew the housing market intimately because I had been, you know, in this process of in and out of my home, and um, I knew this was the place I wanted, and I I got it, which was great, and I planned to move all the big objects in a truck on a Monday, but it was really rainy that winter, and so the movers and I decided we should push it back to the next day to Tuesday. And what was Tuesday? It was the dead boyfriend's birthday. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And so, right. And so, you know, uh, and I don't regret a day of that marriage. You know, I actually, right before I got on this call, I got a text from the husband about something We're, we're, we're in community. We navigate like being around each other, but you know, it's like, we're so afraid. You talked about the stamp. We're so, we're afraid of failure. We're afraid of rejection. We're afraid of, you know, I, there was a time I was, terrified of the shame of getting divorced and what would my college friends who already think I'm out there what would they think of me or what would these people think of me but I got so strong and I got so committed to actually 
really being who I am and really loving who I am and, and supporting my chance of well-being in my life, which we get, you know, whatever you think, whether it's many lives or one life, it's like, I know this is the life I get as me, Rachel Kaplan. I wanted to enjoy it. I want to have well-being. And so I just had to face this terror of, you know, what it would mean to leave a marriage. And I left the marriage in this really powerful way as far as like, you know, the, the alignment, the synchronicity. And I'd say it's in the last two and a half years almost um, since leaving the marriage that I've really been able to recognize how strong, how whole, how healthy I am, and what a voice of wisdom, expertise, and help I am for people. And that's when I've up-leveled my game around putting what I know into the world through HFSS and saying, look, I'm willing to really um, be part of this conversation and help all of us you know, hurt. And so it's one of those moments where you could look at it as a failure, but for me, it's like, it's really the exact medicine I need. And so sometimes we need to trust our lives. We need to trust the falls. We need to just learn to honor and support ourselves and feel our feelings, poop them out. No big deal. Wash your hands, go about your day. Definitely. And there was, there was so much in that, in that whole thing. Um, one of the tying back to the question I asked before is if you're feeling that, that, that feeling of possible suicide, I think that we all have a small voice inside us that tells us keep going anyways. I think it's really important to listen to that voice. Uh, another thing you, and, um, another thing you were talking on was that you got into this other relationship and it didn't work out because of the pains of the past. And I think that's huge. We have to overcome those problems, those challenges that we're experiencing, those failures we've had, those deep emotions that are still hurting us before we can really move on to the next better thing, right? You have to level yourself up before you can get whatever lies at the level up. Right. right. I do agree with that. But I want to say, I actually don't think it was a failure, the, the, the marriage. I mean, because I well, actually think well, that marriage. I wasn't was, trying to say the failure right. was a marriage, but I'm saying in general, right. Right. There, you could I experience I agree with what you're saying, but I think sometimes, like, I think the marriage was for the explicit purpose, like of me healing from that tra tragedy and becoming the healing helper I'm meant to be. And my husband is now in a healthy, happy relationship. And he learned so much about being, you know, he did not enter our relationship with the same skill set. He got like a PhD in relationship through our challenges. And now he's able to show up with, with such a deep prayer for his life. So I think one of the things just to throw out is like loosening our vision about what, what is actually success and failure. Like everything has a shelf life, whether it's a company, a team, a relationship or our lives itself, you know? And so just, you know, kind of looking for what is, what is the perfection of how things work or don't work. And yeah. I agree with you that like, you know, if I want a healthy relationship, if I want a relationship that is a fit for me, if I want something that isn't based in wounding, I do need to address those pains. And that I totally agree with also. Definitely. Yeah. And, and I think there is this, this societal stigma, which I, I think a lot of it comes from our educational system, which I think there's a lot of failures in our educational system, but it's this concept of failure, right? Right. So many people think like failure is the end. And if I fail, there's no hope after that. Right. And what I've found in my experiences is one, you have to have failures. 
And two, sometimes those failures become your greatest successes. Right. Because yeah. this thing happened, because this failure happened, right. you were able to succeed at a whole different level that you never right. would have been able to without it. And right. so I think we need to get rid of this stigma, stigma of failure, right? right? Because I don't think it exists. Right. I think it's just a, a stumbling block on right. the hero's journey. Yeah, learning. So yeah. profound, like the, the summit that we met at, um, you know, there's all these podcasters and people who wanted to connect um, to podcasters and people, you know, building businesses yeah. through online media. And um, what was so powerful to me is, you know, everyone got to get up and say what they do, what their work is, and they were connecting it to their story. It's like, whatever it is that we struggle through, is becomes our medicine to teach and it's really hard to teach something that you didn't have to work for because it's exactly. hard to own something we don't work for i think well, that you can't right? right you you have to have it before you can give it right exactly if i don't have a million dollars i'm sorry i can't give you a million dollars right if i haven't gone through pain i can't teach you how to overcome pain right yeah so it's so neat to be in a group of people who have all overcome whatever they've overcome and now feel it as their purpose and mission to, to share that. And, um, I think that's really something to be, you know, that's what it means to be a grown up and to be a part of society is to go on our journey, harvest the fruits and then find the right way to, to offer it and help people with it. Definitely. I love that. Just, and, and the whole process of a harvest, right? It's a long process. It's right. not an easy process and you no. don't see the fruit of it right away, right? Right. You right, can take exactly. the seed, you put it in the ground, right? You put the dirt over it, you water it, right? If I go back to that dirt the next day and I pull the seed out to make sure it's still there, I'm never going to get any crop, right? right? And, and, and this is the other thing with, with being a farmer, right? You have to create a lot of crops. And guess what? Not all of them will succeed, right? right. There will be crops that die. That right. is the process. You might have a whole field that dies, but that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to starve because if you have other fields, you can still harvest the, the crop from there. And guess what? Next season, right? You can replant that field and who knows, that might be the best field you have next season. Right. You sound like you have a lot of expertise with farming. Do you have farming in your family lineage? I, no, I have no farming. <laughs> Nicely done. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. I yeah. Just, I, I'm, I learn, I, I listen and I learn to a lot of different things. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Well, it's neat actually, like one thing, you know, I, I did two interviews for the, uh, for my show today with different people and, and what kept coming up and because of the, um, kind of lineage where I got the most help, um, with this person who is so earth connected, there really is a way that, you know, when we're feeling lost and we're feeling like we don't know if we can, um, keep going with our painful human lives or we don't know what to do to look at the earth which lives in balance and is so resilient and there's so many ways that some of the greatest healing systems and some of the healthiest um, cultures were living in connection with the earth and in the um, HFSS I definitely correlate to help people understand what an emotion looks like in balance um, we break down like episode seven is anger and we look at fire and then episode eight is which was just released this week sadness and we look at water and grief i mean water literally comes out of our face when we um, feel grief and uh, fear we look at air like the vibration the uncertainty the groundlessness that we have in terror and then to look at shame and worthlessness um, we look at the earth and do we have integrity do we feel like enough 
Um, and one just thing as a gift for all of the people who might be listening and are interested, I've created a quiz um, where if you go to yourcorewound.com, um, there's a little quiz there. It takes you less than five minutes. And um, you just numerically, you know, quantify certain statements and it will send it to me, which is cool. I actually engage with every single quiz and I look at it and then I um, enter your email into a different system where I will send you a little a module of a video, the episode that correlates that emotion from the podcast and a list of strategies of what you can actually try to start diving into the work of moving your feelings. Now, the truth is just as like a, a spoiler alert, the truth is, is that um, we have to be able to move every kind of feeling. So we have to be able to have anger and sadness. And so, um, and you know, even if like, let's say you took the quiz and it says your core uh, wound is anger, which is not totally true, but it's like, <laughs> you have to start with anger. Um, and anger is actually so transformative. It's, it's the emotion that has the bad rap, the, ta the taboo, but it's actually one of the most powerful um, game changers in, in emotional healing. But um, at any rate, you're, you're going to need the others. Um, but it's like a good place to start. And um, because the a podcast is such a in-depth journey and will really help you understand yourself, help you understand how to look at which parts of you you've pushed down into the basement. I want everyone who's interested in this work, if you actually want to achieve healing, go through the whole journey. But it takes a lot of hours of the podcast for you to get to the skills. So this kind of gives you a shortcut of how you can dive in and just try it out for yourself. And so Definitely. that's a and, and really get to easy that way. Core one, right? Yeah. Because if, if that's the big one you have to be looking to overcome and that that is the big one that's preventing you from getting to where you want to get to because right. we all have a core one, I believe. Right. Yeah. And I agree. so if you can start the work on healing that one, right. Yeah. Once you get to the other ones, you'll be that much more prepared to handle the other ones. I well, think. what's interesting is it's a little like an onion generally. And so what's tricky is like for most of us, the core of the core is like around shame or worthlessness like are we enough are we okay and also do we belong and so what you know anger will never be as core as worthlessness and belonging or worth and belonging um but you know when it's a good way to segue because you can't like because it's such a deeply buried feeling for most of us that sense of are we enough you know if you're walking around some people who, who don't have that sense of enoughness are going to be really freaking out or really angry or the flip side of anger which is they might be a doormat they might be like really depressed and attacking themselves but kind of um, you know, passive aggressive, not actually in touch with their, their boundaries, their no. And so th that's one way it could look. And so those, pr those people are going to start working with their anger as a means of getting into that deeper layer of shame. And some people might be more drowning in grief and sadness and, um, you know, despair and hurt and all this. And so then they want to start from a different place. And so, um, it's, so I, I, I caveat all that cause I'm just endlessly honest. And I want people to know that if your results say, and someone actually emailed me saying, you know, it says my results are anger, but I don't think it's right. And I was like, you're right. Um, your core wound is not necessarily anger, but this is where I want you to start with your core wound. This is the thing that you can get good at that will open up those next layers. Yeah. And, and I love that concept, right? Because I, I think human beings are, are there, there's infinitely no to more about ourselves, right? And, and you can't get like 100% knowing of yourself right. because something, something you mentioned earlier is you change over time, right? That circle, right? Each time you come back to that, that somewhat cyclical nature of things, right? You're not the same person, right? There's, right. there's the ancient proverb that says, 
when a uh, when a man goes through a river more than once, it's not the same, right? Because every single time the river changes and every single time he's a different man. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and it's the same thing with us. Every time we think we completely understand ourselves, we have this awesome opportunity to learn something we never knew about ourselves. Right. To change. Yeah. Which is why I encourage people who want to end their lives, stay in it. You're going to change. There's no way you'll stay exactly as you are. It's just impossible. It's literally impossible. And if you feel bad enough that you, that you would end your life, I guarantee you it'll get better because it can't get worse than that. That's as yeah. bad as it gets. So you're absolutely on the bottom. Push off, get some help, and let's keep going. Definitely. And, and, and that's, that's a big piece of everything, I think, is it, especially in the U.S., right? We have what I believe is the myth of independence, right? It's this concept that if I become independent – I will be at the highest level I can be. And I don't think that's true. I think that actually shortcuts where we find the highest, highest levels, which is interdependence, right? right? I can't live on my own. It's not possible. We're not designed. People are not designed to be on their own. Right. We're designed to be in parts of community. We're designed to help each other, right? And I think a lot of times, the, the deeper our depression gets, the more we withdraw from people. Right. And that's the time where we need to seek out more people. We Absolutely. need to seek out better people in our lives. We need to seek out people who have experienced what we've experienced so we can figure out how can they mentor us through this. Or we need to seek out healers, right? Whether, whether it's a, a psychologist or a therapist or, you know, or, or however you want to look at that, right? You, you seek them out so you can learn the techniques that they've found in themselves help heal people so that right. you can use that to heal yourself. Or, or you need to find a coach, right, who can teach you how to take whatever that emotion is and repurpose that emotion to give, you, to give you fuel to do something else. One of the things you talked about is that anger can be a really powerful emotion, right? Just like fire. Fire can be destructive. It can destroy everything around it. And at the same time, fire can bring you life, right? We, no, we yeah, we need fire. Exactly. We went years where fire was literally the only thing that kept us alive at night, right? And so, so fire has the power to also bring life right. and it, it fuels industry. You need fire to fuel industry and you can take that fire, right? That anger and you can repurpose that energy into something productive. And that's something a coach is going to help with. And, and this, this all goes to say that you need other people in your life. Right. Absolutely. You're a wise dude. <laughs> Thank How you. old are you? I'm, I'm on the younger side. I'm actually 25 right now. You're killing it. I'm proud <laughs> of you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Awesome. Um, it, is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything that is on your mind? Any crazy things been happening? I think, I mean, I don't know. I think that's, if you're curious on anything else, I'm happy to share. Um, but that feels like we have been super thorough and inspired. I feel inspired. Um, <laughs> Good. Your people will be inspired. Um, do you have any more questions? I think I'm good right now. But awesome. um, you, this, this has been just a fun conversation. I, Absolutely. There, there's so much you can unpack in emotions. And, and I know for a fact we definitely have not covered nearly everything there is to go right. into. Because again, we're infinitely complex. We can continue to go deeper and deeper into those layers yeah. of onions. Yeah. Yeah. I think I would just say to anyone listening, you know, just to, 
Um, don't be afraid of your pain and you just, this, since there's no way around it, you've already tried that. We all have just to get some skill and move toward it. And, um, you know, it's totally, everything is healable. Everything is feelable. Everything is flushable and, um, move throughable. And so, you know, uh, and I'm happy if people do reach out or they listen to the show, I have, you know, um, if you go to healingfeelingshitshow.com, you, there are ways to reach me. I'm happy to be a part of it. I'll be guiding a group hopefully this summer once I get the right size for the group through a guided journey through the shit show, their own shit show with a um, combination of individual and group support. Um, and like I said, the core, yourcorewound.com will send you, you know, straight to the work part of the program. So I'm here to help. And um, thanks for the opportunity to connect with you and all your wisdom and um, your leaders. It was a pleasure. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. And thank you for having this conversation because I know that this is such a, such a big thing for so many people. Yeah, all that, of us. Exactly. And, and not only just for themselves, but for the people on their teams, the people in their families, right? right. Because yeah. we're all going through this, right? Right. You're not alone in feeling all this nonsense, right? right? Yeah. This is life. These are right. the the, the emotions are a part of, of the beauty of what life is. Right. right? Yeah. The, the good and the bad. Right. Yeah. And we can't numb the bad and not numb the good too. It's funny that you talk about the, just the teams. Um, one of my offerings is going into companies on Fridays. I can only do it on Fridays. So I have clients all the other days and um, Fridays are for feelings is what I call it. And like working <laughs> with corporate teams around creating more emotional intelligence in the workplace and kind of changing. Cause you know, as much as people try to keep it professional and not have feelings at work, when you care about what you're doing at work, you're absolutely going to have feelings. And so how to work with that skillfully. So definitely, um, yeah, go feelings, go feelings. I love it. Awesome. Well, thank you again. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Okay. okay sounds good. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm. That was our fantastic episode with Rachel Kaplan. Thanks for listening to this episode. Please make sure to go to your favorite podcast player of choice and there rate the podcast, then subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. And then if you truly want to be a leader, Share this episode with someone that you know will be impacted because the best leaders fuel not only themselves, but others as well to their heroic potential. If you want to unlock your heroic potential faster, then you will want to join the League of Legendary Leaders, an association of leaders who are dedicated to unlocking their heroic potential unlocking the heroic potentials of others, and where legendary leaders are born. We also have a goal to raise $100,000 monthly to support nonprofits that are actively undertaking causes to impact the future in areas including neurodiversity, character strength, positive psychological research, homelessness, and more. Seize the call now. Go to www.theleadership.guide and click Get Free Guidance Now to propel you on your journey to legendary leadership. I'm your host, Cody Dakota, and I'm honored to have spent this time with you today. My final message for you, and listen closely. It's time. Wake up your heroic potential. Let go of your fears and anxieties, and let's discover what is possible on your journey to become a legendary leader. Emerge and become who you were meant to be.